Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to the third episode of EGIL, the podcast, the podcast of the European Journal of International Law on contemporary issues in public international law. My name is Sarah Nouwen. This podcast started in the early days of lockdown due to COVID-19 and, unsurprisingly, given the all-encompassing impact that the virus has had directly or indirectly on many lives around the world, the virus has received a lot of attention in our podcast. But rather than zooming in on everything corona, we have used the pandemic as a lens through which to analyze more general and fundamental issues in international law. Thus, in episode one, we explored human rights in times of crisis, their relevance and their limitations, also in a legal sense. In the second episode, we used the WHO to discuss global governance in times of a worldwide crisis. Seldom was there such a need for international organizations but seldom were their structural limitations so clearly exposed. And today we move to another question that international lawyers have been struggling with for a while, but it has gained increased attention due to the pandemic. How does international law govern cyber attacks? With me today are your EGIL podcast hosts, Marco Milanovic and Dapo Akande, and two special guests whom we will introduce shortly. But leaving them for a moment mystery guests, Dapo, Can you set out how COVID-19 has brought the question of international law and cyber attacks back into the spotlight? Cyber attacks are nothing new in, in international relations, but what we have seen over the last few months has been a significant increase in these attacks on companies and other organizations that have been involved in the fight against COVID-19. We have seen, for example, an attack on the second biggest hospital in the Czech Republic. We've seen attacks on the WHO itself. We've seen attacks on some of the companies that have been involved in developing therapies or potentially involved in vaccines and and vaccine trials. And these kinds of cyber attacks take different forms. So some of these cyber attacks are what are known as ransomware attacks. So basically, what the the attacker is trying to do is to extort money from from the organization that's involved. Um, some of these attacks are attacks where the 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 attackers are trying to to steal steal sorry uh, data, for example, data relating to vaccines or uh, the research on vaccines or, or treatment. And some of these attacks are what are known as denial of distributed denial of service attacks. And there was a significant one against the U.S. Um, health department in in March, and also against a hospital in in Paris. So quite a big increase in these types of attacks, and they seem to be directly related to the healthcare sector, because this is a sector that is increasingly dependent, of course, on digitalization. You know, uh, a lot of our data is is stored by the systems of of hospitals and other healthcare providers and a lot of the technology is also dependent on on information technology. I hope that every listener recognized the voice of our EGIL podcast host Dapo Akanda. Now let's turn to our other host Marco Milanovic. How have you seen cyber attack coming back into attention due to COVID-19? There are other ways of performing very sophisticated cyber operations. 
And one such, which are often combined with cyber attacks in the more traditional sense, and, and one such uh, uh, method are misinformation operations that are hugely relevant today during the pandemic. And we have observed state actors in particular uh, either spreading or amplifying COVID-19-related misinformation that we already talked about previously on the podcast in the territory of other states or in the information space of other states, sometimes, again, combining it with, with more traditional cyber attacks. And a good comparator point here in particular is how Russia intervened in the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. So you did have your classical hacking attacks, say, uh, uh, you know, Russian uh, military intelligence agents allegedly hacking into the computers of the Clinton campaign. But then that was followed through, through very sophistic- sophisticated misinformation operations, the effects of which are hard to gauge, right? And the sort of same type of scenario we can have here, we can have cyber ops coupled with misinformation operations. So we should, we should think about both of them sort of in tandem. Let's think of these in tandem together with our two guests who I will now introduce. With us today are Harriet Moynihan, Senior Research Fellow in the International Law Program at Chatham House and author of a Chatham House report on the application of international law to cyber attacks. Harriet, welcome. Thank you. Great to be on the show. Well, just by the way, to be clear on the applicable law in this podcast, the podcast is governed by EGIL rules, not Chatham House rules. So all statements, everything you say is attributable. And that warning may be particularly relevant to our other guest, Tilman Rodenhäuser, legal advisor at the International Committee of the Red Cross and co-author of several blog posts on exactly this question. Welcome, Tilman. And I probably should add, I welcome you in your personal capacity. That's correct, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I must say I'm a big fan of the blog, so I'm really, I feel honored to be here with you uh, on this podcast. Let's go to the substance. Some of our listeners may have been following these questions and these issues since the internet exists, but for others it may be new. And therefore, let's ask the preliminary question first. Does international law apply to the world of cyber? Harriet, do you have a view? Yes, thanks, Sarah. Well, I think formally there was indeed some dispute about whether it could be applied, because when we think about cyberspace, we think about a kind of virtual environment with no fixed territorial boundaries. And of course, international law is predicated on a sort of Westphalian geography with territorial uh, boundaries. So it was quite hard to sort of work out how cyberspace might fit with international law. But for some time now, I think states have agreed that in principle, international law, including the principles in the UN Charter, apply. And in 2013 and 2015, the UN group of government experts that look at these issues um, reached agreement on that. So I think probably the more apt question for us to look at is how it applies, which is which is much more difficult. I would just add, though, that not all states, I think, would feel that international law framework as it currently is, um, is adequate uh, for the task of states' activities in cyberspace. Um, And including um, Russia and China, we have some states that are proposing new rules. Whereas I would argue that the existing framework is up to the job, but we need to take some time to think about how it applies. Okay, let's then immediately continue with the question, how? Dapo, any ideas? 
So here we're really in the, the terrain of traditional international law. And first of all, we have to think about who's the author of the attack. So for us to think about how international law applies, we have to start with who's the author. And basically, you have a division between cyber attacks that are conducted by non-state actors and cyber attacks that are conducted by states. So in respect of non-state actors, um, generally speaking, international law doesn't apply to the acts of those non-state actors. But there will be some cases where international law does apply to cyber attacks that are done by non-state actors. So first of all, international law will apply in cases where the act of the non-state actor is attributable to a state, right, under traditional laws of, or traditional rules, I'm sorry, of state responsibility. So then it moves to the category of being a state actor. Secondly, in the context of an armed conflict, we know that international law governs the activities of all the parties to an armed conflict. So even if it's a non-state armed group, international law will apply there. And then thirdly, in relation to non-state actors, and even outside the context of an armed conflict, you might have situations where international law applies because it imposes an obligation on states to take measures to put an end to the acts of the non-state actors. So international law is imposing obligations on states to respond to the acts of non-state actors and to prevent harm that will apply from those non-state from the acts of those non-state actors. So if you think about traditional international law rules, for example, the Corfu Channel case and the principle that arises from the Corfu Channel case, which is that states have an obligation to ensure that their territory is not used for activity that is going to be uh, contrary to the rights of other states. That will apply even in the cyber context. Um, or if we think about the rules relating to the prevention of transboundary harm, we tend to think about those rules as applying traditionally in the context of environmental harm, but there's no reason why those same rules couldn't apply here as well. Or international human rights law, you know, where you might say that a state has an obligation under human rights law to prevent the violation of human rights that, will, that are being conducted by, by other states. Can I pitch in here? I mean, I think uh, I, I agree with everything that Dapo just said. I, I, I think you laid it out very clearly. Uh, I think it's worth reflecting sort of on the question of principle a bit. In law generally, so in domestic law and international law, we are frequently faced with the task of applying norms of general scope and applicability to new problems. We do it all the time, you know. In domestic law, when you have laws regulating motor vehicles or something like that, the issue will arise whether that electric scooter thingy that somebody uses on the on the, tr the street and tries to kill me, whether that is being regulated by that pre-existing law, right? And in international law, we have for a long, long time had rules specifically about this. So if you think in IHL, we have rules specifically that deal with the development of new weapons. You know, the, the drafters of these rules that are centuries old, you know, knew that new weapons were going to be developed and that we have to sort of apply the old rules to, 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 to these new phenomena. So the question cannot be whether international law applies. The question has to be how does it apply? And if it does apply, is it good enough? Or do we have to change it? And I, I think that's the key question. And normatively, that normative question 
in the vast majority of sort of scenarios, I think the existing, as Harriet said, the existing international legal framework is good enough. There might be some specific issues where we need new laws, but then the problem is how exactly are we going to get them with, with great difficulty normally. Okay, so perhaps we can kind of separate three questions. The first is, does international law as such apply? And there we all seem to agree, yes, the fact that there is a new type of state activity doesn't suddenly mean that there is no international law governing it, or it's not that international law is switched off. International law as such continues to apply. Um, the, the second question then one would be, what are the relevant rules of international law that speak to that type of activity? And then perhaps the third question is, okay, how do those relevant rules speak to specifically cyber operations? And then we get to your analogy point and, and do we have to tinker them or, or tailor them to the specific context? But if we go now to the second question, so which rules of international law speak to cyber operations? One area, perhaps to do it somewhat systematically, this discussion, is, is to look at a kind of traditional issue area by issue area. So we could look at IHL. Um, there's a lot of talk about the war on COVID, the conflict or the fight against COVID, which all sounds rather warlike. Um, at the same time, it's difficult to argue that the fight against COVID per se is like an armed conflict. Tillman, you're an expert in IHL. How is your field relevant uh, to this question of cyber operations? You're right. Over the past month, we've heard politicians using war rhetoric to align societies behind their COVID responses. And this is clearly political rhetoric. As you said, from a legal point of view, there's also a clear message, which is there is no war against a pandemic. But cyber attacks, and this is a point which also Dapo and Marco pointed out, cyber attacks against medical facilities, they bring to the fore and they bring to the international discussion an issue that we've been trying, that the International Committee of the Red Cross has been trying to bring to the attention for some time, which is that medical facilities are particularly vulnerable in cyberspace and against cyber attacks. But now to your question, to what extent is international humanitarian law, IHL, relevant? To answer that question, I think we have to look at three points. The first one is one that has just been touched upon. Does IHL apply at all in cyberspace? The second question would be, does the attack take place in the situation of an armed conflict? And the third issue would be, is it related to that conflict? And let me take them one by one, and I promise to be rather short on them. The first one, does IHL apply? For the International Committee of the Red Cross, and for me personally, there is no doubt. IHL applies to cyber operations that are conducted in the context of an armed conflict. And this is also the position that is taken by what I would say is the majority of states and an increasing number of states. And while it is true that when we listen into the debates that take place in the United Nations, there are doubts about whether IHL applies and some important players raise doubts about that. I doubt that when we speak to militaries, or I know that when we speak to militaries, that is much less of a question for them. It is clear that if, if cyber operations are taking place and are conducted in the context of an ongoing armed conflict, international humanitarian law applies. So it brings us to the second question, which is, if we look at some of the attacks that DAPO described, do they take place in the context of an armed conflict? If they were to take place in a traditional armed conflict, let's think about Syria, Yemen, Ukraine, international humanitarian law applies, and that means that it prohibits parties from armed of parties to the armed conflict to conduct cyber operations against medical facilities. And if we now look at the at the several 
Um, at the several attacks that DAPL mentioned, many of them have been conducted in contexts that are not affected by armed conflict. So these attacks will not be regulated by international humanitarian law, but the virus is spreading and also conflict dynamics are constantly evolving. So we shouldn't dismiss the possibility that, especially in future, cyber attacks against medical facilities may also take place in the context of an armed conflict. And I think there is a question that has vexed us uh, as, as lawyers, that has kept us on our toes, and which is also a real concern for states, which is the question of, can a cyber operation, including one against a hospital, trigger an armed conflict and trigger the applicability of international humanitarian law? And the short answer here would be yes, if such an attack causes death, injury, or destruction, which is comparable to a traditional use of force between states, then that would be the starting point of an armed conflict. But then with cyber attacks, also some of the ones that we've seen, there's, an, there's a question which is much less clear, and that is whether cyber operations that have less of a serious impact that may interrupt healthcare without causing serious harm to humans or destructions, whether that amounts to an armed conflict is much less clear. And if we look at how states have reacted um, to these to these attacks over the past weeks, I would say that um, that no one has actually invoked ITER in that context. So it doesn't seem that such operations would actually trigger an armed conflict. And on the last point, when we see a cyber operation, even in the context of an armed conflict, we will need to determine whether it's linked to the armed conflict. And of course, if it is something which is attributable to the military of one of the parties to the conflict, there is, an, there is a link to the conflict. But what I would like our listeners to take away is that even in ongoing armed conflict, there will be cyber operations that are conducted without having a link to the conflict, for example, normal, ordinary cyber crime. And this will then not be regulated by international humanitarian law. Tilman, imagine IHL applies. Can you give us some specific rules? What does it mean? In essence, it's, it's basic, but it's also comprehensive. And the, the, this basic but comprehensive rule is that medical facilities and medical staff must be respected and protected. And concretely, that means at least two things. The first is that belligerents must not direct cyber operations against medical infrastructure, medical personnel. And also, they must take great caution to avoid incidental harm, what is commonly referred to as, to as uh, collateral damage. When they So they must avoid such collateral damage when they conduct their cyber operations against lawful military objectives, military targets. And the second point is to protect angle of that obligation is that parties to armed conflicts also have to take positive steps to protect hospitals and medical units against attacks, such as attacks mounted by criminals or also by other belligerents. And maybe one more rule to flag is that at least in conflicts between states, the Geneva Conventions oblige states to criminalize and to prosecute or extradite persons who direct cyber who attack, uh, who direct attacks, and I would argue including cyber attacks against medical facilities and cause extensive destruction. And under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, attacks against medical facilities may constitute war crimes in all types of conflicts. Wonderful. So you've now taken us from IHL already to international criminal law as well. So the se second area of international law we've covered. But I would like to go back to an area that you already touched upon. And that is almost this preliminary question as to whether cyber attacks themselves can amount to the use of force, which brings us to the law on the use of force. And you mentioned as one of the ways to assess that the the question of whether what the effects are of the cyber attack. 
does everybody agree? Is that the way to look at, to establish whether or not there is use of force? Yeah, so maybe I can come in here, Sarah. So I do agree that, um, first of all, I do agree that cyber attacks can amount to a use of force. And this goes back to the point that we've already made, which is that what we need to do is we take the rules of international laws, they apply in a non-cyber context, and we ask ourselves, how do they apply in a cyber context? So this raises the fundamental question of what is a use of force? Of course, we all know that the UN Charter prohibits the use of force, Article 2.4. It's also prohibited under customary international law. But what the UN Charter does not tell us is what is force. And so the question is, can an attack that's committed in the virtual world amount to force? Well, the way we look at that is we say, what is force in a non-cyber context? And traditionally, what we would do is we would say, if what the state has done is to uh, engage in an act which is going to cause death or physical damage or injury, then that is what amounts to a use of force. And so if a state does the same things using cyber means, in other words, causes death, physical damage, or or injury, then that would amount to, to a use of force. The difficulty, I suppose, that arises here, though, is whether or not there is some kind of threshold, right? Whether there's some kind of de minimis act which would not amount to a use of force. So we can imagine, for example, a sort of cyber attack which if it were, for example, to turn off, say, all the ventilators that existed in a given hospital, killing hundreds of people, I don't think that we would have much difficulty in terming that a use of force that's contrary to Article 2.4. Of course, we're only in the realm of Article 2.4 if it's done by state, of course, so we need to remember that. But on the other hand, what if it's a cyber attack that, for example, prevents a hospital from being able to conduct surgeries, which it has planned. And then those people, because they're not able to get the surgery, they then die, right? Would that amount to a use of force? That could be a tricky question where there are issues of directness or indirectness, and then there are issues of what kind of threshold, one person, two people, those, yeah. Harriet, one of the principles that your Chatham House report focuses on is non-intervention, a principle that seems to go beyond prohibiting the use of force. How does that principle speak to cyber operations? The principle of non-intervention is particularly important because the vast majority of state cyber attacks are, in fact, below the threshold of use of force. Although I would say that there are debates, as as Dapo has raised, about where that threshold in itself lies. But most cyber attacks are actually persistent, low-level intrusions by one state into another state. And... um, Although they're low level, they're nevertheless capable of doing substantial damage. Um, And so the rule of non-intervention is very important, as is um, its related rule, the principle from which it derives, which is the principle of sovereignty. The prohibition on intervention consists basically of two elements. The first is coercion by one state of another state. Um, And the second element is in relation to matters in which the target state is entitled to decide freely. Um, And this includes um, the choice of political, economic, social and cultural systems and the formulation of foreign policy. And really the essence of the prohibition on non-intervention is the uh, the principle of coercion, um, which was defined in the ICJ's case of Nicaragua as relating to um, choices which must remain free ones. Um, So it's really about depriving the target state of its ability to exercise its free will. 
And I can certainly see an argument that in relation to state cyber attacks on another state's healthcare systems, it may be possible for those to violate the principle of non-intervention. Um, and that's because um, if you think that the, uh, the, state in, the target state in question is, say, unable to carry out operations or to run ventilators to save lives, then effectively it's, it's unable to carry out its, um, its governance of its healthcare systems properly. And therefore, in certain circumstances, it could reach that threshold. So you mentioned already the other principle, sovereignty, and it seems to kind of the, the most general principle in international law that we can find. Can you specify how this very general principle would speak to the phenomenon such as cyber operations? We should start with what the principle is, I suppose, in the first place. Um, and just to, to set it out, um, I mean, sovereignty is essentially a bundle of rights, which is um, about includes the right for a state to exercise independent powers on its territory and also the principle of equality between states. Um, and of course, from this general principle, we get specific rules like the rules on the use of force and the principle of non-intervention. Um, and in the cyber context, I think some states would argue that there is a sort of general principle, which is actually a hard rule with legal consequences if it's violated. And many states are starting to come out with that position. But there are some states that would argue that it's actually more of a general principle, um, which is not, uh, at least in the cyber context yet, uh, a sort of a rule that can be violated with consequences. And while that is um, a debate of much interest, um, particularly amongst academics, I think the more important question is what is the content of sovereignty in the cyber context? Harriet, I do, I do agree with that, but can I just barge in? Sure. When you said some states argue it's not a rule. There's only one state that argues that that's not a rule, and that just happens to be our state, the UK, right? No other state has said sovereignty is not a rule in cyberspace. Marco, this this opens up a separate question, which is what we consider our state. I know, <laughs> I know, I agree. And well, my other state, Serbia, is like most states in this position, blissfully silent. And that's our big problem. What do we do when the vast majority of, of, of states are silent on these issues? I mean, so the only other state actors that have been raising this whole uh, problem of sovereignty not being a rule at all are some elements of the U.S. administration, especially sort of in the U.S. Cyber Command, the lawyers in the Cyber Command and the Defense Department. But if you look at, for example, the speech by, uh, uh, by, by, by the U.S., uh, uh, the, the, the counsel of the Defense Department, the general counsel of the DOD, it's very sort of mushy-wushy trying to keep all options open. You know, the Americans have not endorse the position of the UK Attorney General, for example, that sovereignty is not a rule. And no other state has done that, whereas many other states are pushing back. And the reason why that's important is that sovereignty is actually the easiest rule to violate through a, a health-related cyber operation. It's, it's the nicest, easiest thing. And that's why it sucks when you don't have it as a rule. I would say, I mean, the US recently came out with its position, the Department of Defense, and it did say that it shares some similarities with the UK position, which I think is in itself quite nuanced, because it talks about um, there is not yet a sort of a cyber rule on sovereignty. And I think underlying that is this question mark about what the rule actually is, and how it applies. 
And um, that's the big debate, I think. You know, do we think that a violation of sovereignty in cyberspace is one state um, interfering in a, uh, or intruding on another state's server, just sitting there, for example, listening, um, which, mm-hmm. as we know, in the day-to-day interaction of states is something that quite commonly occurs, in which case, you know, states could be in permanent violation of each other's sovereignty. Or do we think there's some kind of threshold under which, you know, there has to be some kind of de minimis before sovereignty is violated, which then presupposes we need some other definition to sovereignty. You know, what are the criteria for that threshold? Are we talking about qualitative or quantitative effects? I, I totally agree with that, right? The, 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 the problem is this, that the other rule that can do a lot of work here, which is the non-intervention rule, has so many inherent complexities and contradictions, in particular with how we define this idea of coercion, that to me, it, it seems much easier to say if a state hacks a hospital and, or a COVID-19 testing center and 100 people die as a result, it's much easier for me to say that's a violation of, of the victim state's territorial sovereignty than it's to say it's a violation of the rule of non-intervention because to get into non-intervention, we frequently sort of get into considerations of what's the intervening state's intent, what was the outcome that it tried to influence? What was the exact choice that the victim state was being denied? What was the actual method? Was it denying the victim state's ability? Was it denying its will? And somehow it's a shame if sovereignty is not there. So, somehow the whole legal discussion becomes much more complex, needlessly so, than if sovereignty is just accepted as a rule. That's at least my view. I would say that at least with the non-intervention principle, you have a more established area of international law and you do have coercion, which is, you know, as the ICJ in Nicaragua said, it's an important part. And so I agree with you that there are real debates about what coercive behavior means in the cyberspace. And I think we're really at a relatively early stage of working these things out and states are still, you know, at a relatively early stage of coming out with their views. But I think, you know, there are the understanding that coercive behavior is one state effectively depriving another state of its choices is actually fairly straightforward. And I'm not sure we need to get into issues of intent. I think it's the fact of that coercive behavior, whether it actually or potentially causes effects. By contrast, I would argue that sovereignty raises a lot more difficulties. I mean, we look in the Tallinn Manual, which is a very useful piece of work, but the, you know, the range of views on what violation of sovereignty means there speak for themselves. We've discussed sovereignty, and many international lawyers, at least traditionally, would consider that perhaps the alpha and omega of international law, it all begins and ends with sovereignty. But others have argued that actually the new alpha and omega of international law is human rights law. So perhaps this is the final area we can explore. How does human rights law, international human rights law, speak to cyber operations? You know, human rights law actually does have quite a lot to say in this respect, um, particularly when we're talking about cyber attacks against healthcare, because this immediately implicates issues relating to the right to life, and it also implicates issues relating to the right to, to health. So states have an obligation, obviously, to respect the right to life, but they also have an obligation to ensure, and that means that they also have protective um, obligations in, in this regard. Now, If we think about the obligation of states to refrain from taking action which will violate the rights to life of of other individuals, to the extent that this uh, cyber attack is going to cause death, then, you know, we can actually 
come out of some of the difficulties that we were thinking of when we talked about the use of force in terms of causality and in terms of of directness, because one might still argue that you know the right to life is implicated even if the state is not the one that is directly causing that uh, that death, but as long as it's sort of within the chain in a in a reasonably proximate way. The big problem, though, that would arise in the context of human rights law is that if you think about the scenario that we're talking about, we are talking about a scenario where state A is engaging in a cyber attack that is affecting people in state B. Or, alternatively, we're talking about a scenario where people in state A are engaging in a cyber attack that passes through the cyber infrastructure of state B but is going to affect state C. In either case, in either of these two scenarios, the state concerned is being asked to protect the right to life or not to violate the right to life of people outside of its own territory. So there we get into the age-old question in relation to human rights law, whether or not the potential victim is within the jurisdiction of the state that is being that is alleged to have violated the the right there. So I'll leave that to Marco to talk about this whole question of extraterritorial jurisdiction. Yes, it's my my very favorite topic that uh, I, I did a PhD on and then I can't seem to get rid of, like some kind of wart. I don't know. So um, it's, a, it's a complicated question, right? Uh, in, in some way, morally, it's an easy question. Why shouldn't states have to respect the human rights of people they affect outside their territory, right? Morally, there doesn't seem to be any reason why why these obligations should stop at the border. So that's sort of the universality impulse. On the other hand, you know, the text of these treaties, the, the complexity of the jurisprudence, the sort of uh, bad practical effects that imposing burdensome obligations on states might have, uh, you know, re- really make things difficult. Um, traditionally, we've discussed this question of extraterritoriality most controversially, most contentiously, in the case of kinetic operations, like using a drone to kill somebody outside your territory. And we've had a, a, a bunch of states, very powerful states, resisting attempts to, to have human rights applied to these types of situations. Um, we have also had some human rights bodies, in particularly one, and that's the European Court, creating a very restrictive jurisprudence on this issue. And that's the infamous Bankovic decision which was decided just a few months after 9-11, and which effectively said, if I drop a bomb on you, you don't have a right to life if you're outside my territory. Um, Now, in recent years, there's been a lot of pushback against that. We've been discussing electronic surveillance abroad. Think NSA, GCHQ programs that surveil people completely outside their territory, but surveil millions of people. And... Um, a bunch of human rights bodies have been coming out with very expansive positions. The Human Rights Committee has ab- adopted a very broad functional approach to the extraterritorial applicability of the right to life. The Committee on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights has adopted a very broad approach to the extraterritorial applicability of the right to health, in part because the Covenant on Socioeconomic Rights does not have one of these jurisdiction clauses. The Inter-American Court uh, of Human Rights has adopted an, an opinion on the American Convention and, 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 inv- and the environment, in which it said basically that if a company operating in state A produces transboundary harm 
on the territory of state B, a person affected by that harm in B will be within A's jurisdiction, okay? Even if it's the private actor doing the polluting. And you can do a very easy an analogy to a cyber attack. If a hacker group from state A harms people in state B, under the inter-American court's approach, you know, uh, people in, in state B could, could very much sue state A. So th the issue is basically where we're going to go with this. Uh, I have long advocated for an, an approach whereby state negative obligations, obligations of restraint, should apply without any territorial limitation. Because I always have the ability not to do something. Uh, I always have the ability not to interfere with your life, your privacy, your freedom of speech, your health, without properly justifying why I'm doing that. And just in the past few weeks, there's been a very important judgment by the German Federal Constitutional Court in a purely domestic setting, where the court said that the German basic law, the German constitution, applies to any kind of extraterritorial surveillance done by Germany against foreigners abroad, okay? And that same reasoning will apply, obviously, a fortiori, to any kind of active cyber operation that's not merely surveillance, it's not just espionage. And I think that's the right answer. If that's the right answer, whenever any state conducts a hostile cyber operation on the territory of some other state that can adversely affect the right or health of people during the pandemic, human rights law would apply, remedies could exist, and so on. A more complicated question is the positive duty to protect. So that's the inter-American court's uh, judgment. Does the territorial state from which cyber operations are emanating into the territory of some other state, does it have the, the positive duty to prevent these attacks? Marco, your argument would be quite clear where it's the state that's conducting the cyber attack and what you're saying is that it has human rights obligations not to you know violate the right of the right to life of people outside what if though it's a scenario where it's not the state itself that's conducting the attack but it knows that this is happening and it will affect people outside and it can bring it to an end right so does it have a due diligence obligation under human rights law under human rights law to do this in this particular case. In that scenario, if you take the Human Rights uh, Committee's general comment number 36, where they talked about the state having the ability to control the exercise of the right, um, as long as it's sort of direct and it's foreseeable, even in that scenario, one could argue that the state has human rights obligations to prevent because it can control the exercise of that right and it can do it in a way which is direct, and it can do it in a way which is, is foreseeable. Uh, and, sorry, if it doesn't do it, it would be foreseeable that the right would be violated. Yes, exactly. And that's where the Inter-American Court is in the advisory opinion on the environment. That's exactly sort of where they're at. And the direct implication of that opinion would seem to be that states would have not just a general international due diligence obligation, but a human rights obligation to protect people outside their territory against hostile cyber attacks emanating from their territory. And that's a very, very expansive position. We shall see what happens, right? I think listening to you and listening to eminent voices of international law and listening to recent jurisprudence, that is um, sing singular jurisprudence from, from my home country, but also from the human rights or a view from the Human Rights Committee, it gives the impression that 
that human rights law has really advanced in that direction and is the morally right direction. But I would still caution that I think we're on the way. And Marco said it is the right direction in which it moves. But I wouldn't be I wouldn't be sure that this is actually yet the accepted view among states. And I think states would um, express much more cautious views, which we as lawyers have to take into account and, and live with. I think that's true. That That's perfectly fair point. Okay, now we have reached consensus. Let's stop before it immediately opens again. I think this is a good moment to end this discussion. One thing I was thinking about when Marco was mentioning uh, human rights case law in the context of the environment is that actually a lot of our discussion today we could just lift up and apply to, for instance, climate change, questions about sovereignty, about causality, about intent, the relevance thereof. And to me, it shows that this discussion was really not the technicalities of cyber, but the most fundamental principles of international law, which are relevant in almost any domain of international law. For much more of this, please listen to our next podcast. But first, a very warm thank you to Harriet Moynihan and Tilman Rodenhäuser for joining in. Thanks for tuning in. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.